Luke 16, and we'll pick up reading in verse 14. Luke 16, 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now you can probably hear already why I've entitled the sermon tonight, Hard Sayings. This passage is difficult on a number of fronts. First of all, some of the things Jesus says here are quite hard to swallow, aren't they? For one thing, look at verse 18 again. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced commits adultery. Try printing that on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and tacking it to the bulletin board at work in the morning. See what happens. Probably not anything too friendly. And then verse 15 is no less challenging, is it? That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Surely when Jesus said that, he knew he wasn't going to be making any friends with comments like that. And those comments may even rub us the wrong way in a few moments when we try to put the feet of application to them. Jesus is warning us that some of the things in people that we sometimes think are so cool actually make God want to throw up. So I say again, much of what Jesus says in these five verses is hard to swallow. Other portions of what he says here are simply hard to grasp. In other words, as Peter said about the Apostle Paul in 2 Peter 3, so we can say about Jesus in this passage, some of the things he says are hard to understand. For instance, he seems to indicate in verse 16 that the transition from the Old Testament into the era of the gospel has brought about something altogether new. But then, in the very next verse, he says that the Old Testament will never be out of date, and that, if you will, not even the tick mark that differentiates the capital letter Q from the capital letter O will ever drop out of the law. So God's doing a new thing through the preaching of the gospel, he says, verse 16, but the old thing is as valid as ever. And, and it's not easy to bring those two statements together and to see what he's really getting at. And so we'll be dealing this evening with some things that are hard to grasp. Hard to swallow, things hard to grasp. And also, as you just read these verses, I think we can say that this passage as a whole is hard to piece together. That is to say, unless one was committed simply to work through the book of Luke in consecutive order as we're doing, one would never in a million years preach these five verses together because they don't seem like they go together. It's very hard to follow Jesus' train of thought if you just read from verse 14 through verse 18. He's criticizing the Pharisees for their mainly outward religion in verses 14 and 15, but then in verse 16, he seems to totally shift gears and to begin contrasting the law and the gospel and giving instructions about divorce and remarriage and so on. So how did he get from the Pharisees to divorce and remarriage by the end of these five verses? The transition that he makes is so baffling that even 
Uh, one commentator, Robert Stein, who's written over 600 pages on the book of Luke, says about this passage simply, it's difficult to understand how verse 16 relates to what has preceded. And that's comforting to me because it's difficult for me to understand as well. It's not to say that verse 16 doesn't relate to verses 14 and 15. It's just to say that we're going to have to put on our thinking caps tonight. Indeed, as I was thinking about this message, it seemed to me that this passage perhaps is going to be a bit like those big enormous pills that the doctors sometimes prescribe for us to take. We don't really want to take them necessarily. We don't like the way they feel in our mouths and the way they go down. And if we don't get those things down the first time, then that awful taste starts to seep out. And it's not good. And so it may be at first tonight with the things that Jesus is going to say. We may not feel immediately comfortable with what he's saying, and we may not initially like the taste of it. But we also know, as with the pills, if we'll just follow the prescription, it will be good for us in the end. But even when we're committed to do that, even if we're convinced that we should just swallow whatever pills the doctor gives us, sometimes they're just plain hard to get down our throats, right? Some of us have more difficulty with that than others but the shape and the size of them can be a challenge for us to get down and again the same might be said of this passage tonight the way these sentences and ideas are just laid out is somewhat awkward at least to our minds these verses aren't the easiest verses in the bible to figure out and yet we need to figure them out and so we need to think hard tonight and i wonder sometimes if god didn't put these sort of difficult passages in the bible just so that we might remember that we need the holy spirit's help We're going to need his help tonight if we're going to understand what we read, if we're going to adhere to what we read, and if we're going to know how to apply what we read. So before we get knee-deep into these hard sayings, we just need to pause for a moment, uh, each of us where we are, and ask the Spirit's help. And I'm going to give you just about half a minute for you to pray that silently on your own, and then I'll pray for us out loud, and then we'll dive into the passage itself. Father, we confess now that there are some things in the Bible, as Peter says, that are hard to understand, and yet we know that they're inspired and that they're true and that they're applicable and that they're good. And God, we know that, um, as Paul says, the natural mind cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. And so we pray, God, that you would help us. You've given us, who are believers, spiritual minds. You've given us the mind of Christ, but we pray that you help us to appropriate it tonight. We pray that the Spirit would come and shed light on these verses. And God, that we wouldn't just understand academically or mentally, but that you would apply these truths to our heart, God, that each of us would leave having heard from you, and that you would exalt your Son, Jesus, in all of these things, and we ask in his name. now as we wade into the verses, I think the best strategy is going to be just to take the four sayings of Jesus that make up this passage, one saying each in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, just to take each of those four and look at them one by one. And as we go, I'll try to make some connections between the two as I see them, 
but sometimes we may need to just take the verse as it is, even if we're not quite sure how it connects with what comes before or after. So let's just begin by taking a closer look at verse 15. You, he says to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Why does Jesus say that, and to whom does he say it? Well, remember verse 14, he said it to the Pharisees who were lovers of money and who were scoffing at what he just finished saying in verse 13. And what did he just finish saying in verse 13? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so if we can put verses 13, 14, and 15 together, Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, these lovers of money, these lovers of the applause of men, and he's saying something like this to them. You guys think you're really okay, don't you? You think God's pretty pleased with you. And you've gone to great lengths to make sure that others think the same. You walk around, as he says in Matthew 6, with your churchy clothes on, and you offer long prayers, and you make sure everyone sees you putting the envelope into the offering plate. But he says, God knows your hearts. God knows that you love your money more than you love your maker, verse 13. In fact, perhaps he's even implying that the, implying that the whole reason why they serve God is because they think that it will help them financially. But he says, God sees through you, and he also sees how you love men's applause. And you need to know, Jesus is saying to them, that your money and your pomp and your attempts at popularity actually make God sick. Everyone else may be impressed with your clothes and your cash and your religious achievements, but they're a stench in God's nostrils, and he's the one whose opinion really counts. Now, that's the point of verse 15. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard what he says. This is the same Jesus who just finished telling the story of the prodigal son, and now he says this. It's amazing. What he's saying is, while humankind esteems wealth and popularity and intentionally conspicuous religious do-gooderism and while humankind esteems being quote good enough to go to heaven those are the kinds of things that impress people God's not impressed he says and we need to be careful that we note that we may not be like the Pharisees in every detail for most of us hopefully not like them in most details but each one of us is certainly tempted along these kinds of lines aren't we we're tempted to do the things that the Pharisees were doing. Let me just remind you of the things that they were doing. First, each of us by nature is tempted to want to justify ourselves, as Jesus says in verse 15. None of us likes to admit that we're wrong, right? None of you, none of you gets joy out of admitting that you're wrong, at least not on a human level. Each one of us would like to have a really good excuse when we get caught in our sin. And all of us by nature, though by grace we can be different, but all of us by nature would sometimes like to feel like we're actually doing pretty good by our creator. That is, that even though we know that no one deserves to go to heaven, we'd sometimes in our heart of hearts like to think that if anyone actually did, well, it would probably be someone like me. So I say by nature, we'd like not to have to rely on God's grace so much. By nature, we'd like to be able to get to the end of some of our days and say, I did it today. I didn't sin today. My record's clean today. I don't need any forgiveness today. That's what the human heart is like. It wants to stand on its own two feet and to say, look how well I'm doing. The human heart wants to justify itself. And we have to be aware of this tendency because if we're not careful, we can start to fall into it. We can start to manipulate the definition of sin 
so that we can feel better about ourselves. We can start to manipulate the rules just a little bit. Or we can simply blunt our consciences so that we can feel like we're pretty good people after all. But that's unchristian, isn't it? Those things don't describe a Christian. They describe a Pharisee. In fact, the most Christian thing we can do in relation to our own self-image is to lie on the ground and groan over how far short we fall. And then to stand on our feet, never justifying ourselves, but magnifying God's grace. So I say we're tempted like the Pharisees to justify ourselves. We're also tempted, more specifically, to justify ourselves, as Jesus says, in the sight of men. That is to say that even if we're willing to admit the sorry truth about ourselves to ourselves, we'd still like it if other people thought that we were the picture of godliness, wouldn't we? And some of us may go out of our way sometimes to make sure that other people think we're spiritual. We can use certain lingo in front of other people or talk about our our ministry or let it slip out how much we give to the church on a monthly basis, those kinds of things. And, And most of us, though, we're not quite so overt And yet we can sometimes be desperate, some of us, to make sure that we keep our sins a secret and to excuse them when they finally are exposed so that people won't think poorly of us. We might not say it in this way, but what we sometimes want is for other people to think that we're actually worthy of the name Christian. But actually, the most Christian thing that we can ever do is to admit how unworthy we really are, isn't it? So be careful of these things. Be careful of wanting to justify yourself, whether it's in the sight of God or whether it's in the sight of men. I know your head knows better than to do that, and so does mine, but that doesn't prevent my heart and often my lips and my hands from wanting to prove myself as really worthy of the name Christian. Now, none of us, or none of this, I should say, None of this is to say that we ought not to strive for holiness or that people ought not to think well of us. People ought to think well of us if we're Christians, right? If we're growing in Christ-likeness, people ought to think well of us. But the point Jesus is making is, if people think well of you, even if they do, that's not the foundation of our Christianity, is is it? That's not our justification. Our justification is that Christ was and is worthy on our behalf. That Christ stood in our place by his sinless life and his sacrificial death. That's where we stand justified. And let me point out one other way we're tempted to be like the Pharisees. Namely in that we can, if we're not careful, be quick to esteem what the world esteems rather than what God esteems. We want people to like us, right? We want to present an air of confidence and and to for people to think that we've got things somewhat together. That's what enables us to go places in the world, right? Confidence, the ability to win friends and influence people. And so that that the things that the world esteems become more and more important to us so that we can do those things. But let us never forget, among other things, that what God esteems in Psalm 51 is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. The very thing that the world sees as weakness is the thing that God says, that's one thing I'll never despise. And in addition, let it be said that sometimes we, with the world, esteem, as I said before, conspicuous religious do-gooderism. In other, in other words, the world esteems those plaques on the wall that says so-and-so is a platinum donor and 
Mr. What's-His-Name is a gold partner. The world esteems when people can front their religious or their charitable stuff in front of everybody else for, for them to see. The world applauds that. The world will applaud you if you let it slip out this November how many shoeboxes you packed for Operation Christmas Child. But those public displays of altruism make God's stomach turn, is what Jesus is saying. The world applauds, and God turns his head the other way. Because hasn't he not told us to beware of practicing our righteousness before men to be noticed by them, Matthew 6? And hasn't he said in the same chapter not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing? So yes, there are ways for us to do what we're supposed to do and for people to see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven, but but it shouldn't be conspicuous. It shouldn't be our attempt to be noticed by men, to be esteemed by men. And then what about the world of fashion or the world of being cool? It might not be important to some of you, but it's important to some, and we need to remember in the regard of being cool that that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, does that mean it's necessarily unspiritual to to be fashionable or to be well-liked? No. But what it does mean is that the time and energy and money that some people give to coming across as being with it is a colossal waste of that time and that money and that energy. And it's my hope and it's my belief that many of us are, are moving beyond these keeping up appearances, ways of living, whether it's in the realm of religion or whether in the realm of being up-to-date and well-thought-of and cool. But we're always prone to slipping back into these old ways, aren't we? Always prone to go back and worry about what people think. And the reality is we needn't be. Our value, our esteem, our justification are all secure in Christ, aren't they? So we needn't be so caught up in what other people think. We needn't worry about justifying ourselves before other people or before God because God has justified us in Christ once and for all. And that's all the stamp of approval that any of us really needs, isn't it? Now, speaking of being justified in Christ, speaking of that good news, listen to what Jesus says now about the good news in verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John... Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, there are two things that are going on in this verse. One is that people are forcing their way into the kingdom. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the first thing that's going on in this verse, obviously, is a comparison between the Old and the New Testaments. Clearly, Jesus is saying that something changed with the coming of John the Baptist and the opening of what we now know as the New Testament. Something changed. And what changed was not simply that we have a new set of books to follow after Malachi. No, he seems to be saying something more substantive substantive happened. There's a difference, he's saying, between what we have when we read the law and the prophets of the Old Testament and what we have when we read the gospel of the kingdom being preached in the new. The question is, what is the difference? The easy default answer that many people blurt out to this question is to say, well, what's new in the New Testament is the gospel. And they quickly assert that the Old Testament was all about rules and regulations and that the New Testament is all about the good news of the gospel of Jesus. But that dichotomy is nothing, there is nothing that could be further from the truth. For instance, is it true that there are no rules and regulations in the New Testament? Of course not. Look no further than verse 18. And 
on the other hand, is it true that there's no gospel in the Old Testament? Moses and Abraham and the prophets would roll over in their graves at such an assertion. Because just, didn't Jesus teach us in Luke 24, 27 that the Old Testament is all about himself? So of course there's gospel in the Old Testament. It's 39 books worth of teaching about Jesus. So then, if the new thing that began with John the Baptist was not that we now had the gospel after so many years of law, 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 I say, if that's not the new thing, then what is the new thing? What does Jesus mean when he says that in the Old Testament, the law and prophets were proclaimed, but now that John has come, now that we're in the New Testament era, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached? What's the difference? Well, the difference is that while the Old Testament, through the law and the prophets, pictures and prophesies and prepares for the king and his kingdom, the New Testament comes along and preaches, he's come. He's come. The Old Testament, in other words, says the king is coming to save his people. He's going to come and lay down his life for their sins. He's going to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles. But the New Testament comes with clarity and says the king is here. See him loving sinners. See him dying in their place. See him rising from the grave. See his fame spreading to the ends of the earth. The king has come. So there is, and this is Jesus' point, there is great advantage to possessing not just the Old Testament, but possessing and living in the era of the New Testament. It's not that we can be saved and that Moses and Abraham couldn't be, and it's not that we are saved in a different, more gracious way than they were. No, Abraham was saved by faith just the same as you and I are, according to Romans 4. But I say again that Jesus' point is there is an advantage to living in this side of Bible history. Because when we look to the Savior, we do not simply have the shadows and the hints of the Old Testament. but We have the realization, the clearly defined realization of those shadows and hints. We have the clearly preached gospel in the New Testament. The law and the prophets were proclaimed giving hints and shadows and signs and promises and so on. But now the gospel is preached. The gospel is no longer pictured by the law and the prophets mainly. It's preached in all of its clarity. So the difference in the Testaments then is not one of content, but one of realization. The New Testament realizes or fulfills what the Old Testament prophesies. The New Testament makes clear what the Old Testament portrays in hints and shadows. Or to put it in more succinct terms, the difference between the Old and the New Testaments is not the difference between law and gospel. It's the difference, rather, between the gospel promised and pictured and prepared for in the Old Testament and the gospel fulfilled in the New Testament. That's so important that I want to say it again to you so that it might lodge firmly in your mind. The difference between the Old and the New Testaments is not the difference between law and gospel. It's the difference, rather, between the gospel promised, pictured, and prepared in the Old Testament and that same gospel fulfilled and preached in the New Testament. The Old Testament, if you will, is like all the children's Christmas gifts wrapped up and under the tree promising a wonderful Christmas morning. But the New Testament is 11 a.m. on December 25th with all of those same prizes and surprises that were there all the time now opened up and spread all across the living room floor for everyone to see. 
And perhaps that Christmas metaphor will help, help us as we consider that strange second half of verse 16 as well. Jesus says that the kingdom of God uh, is such that everyone is forcing his way into it. Everyone's forcing his way into it. That's not normally the way that we would think of the kingdom of God, is it? That's not the normal metaphor that we would probably use. In fact, the New Testament usually speaks of the kingdom of God coming to us, not us forcing our way into it. The New Testament's emphasis is on God's grace, on Christ breaking into our world more so than on us breaking into his world. But this point makes clear that the reality is that before the gifts are ever spread out across your living room floor, some little child has to tear into them with great gusto and enthusiasm. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. Salvation, entrance into the kingdom of God, is a free gift that God gives to us. But we must tear into it. We must eagerly open it up. We must force our way in, to put it in Jesus' language. Just, just like that shrewd, albeit immoral, manager that we read about on Sunday in verses 1 through 13. He was willing to do whatever it took to prepare himself for the future. And we, Jesus is now saying in verse 16, need to do whatever it takes to prepare ourselves for the future. And it's the same thing here in verse 16, incidentally, that we find Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount, where he urges us to strive to enter into the narrow gate and metaphorically to cut off our hands and to gouge out our eyes if need be. That's what he's getting at here in this passage. The people who get into God's kingdom are the people who really want to get into God's kingdom. The people who get into God's kingdom are the people who push and scrape and claw against sin and against relying on anything but Christ. And we need to be careful here. When we picture ourselves scraping and clawing and doing whatever it takes to get into the kingdom, we're not talking about doing something to justify ourselves. Remember that. Jesus just spoke against that in verse 15. So he's not turning around here now and saying, now you have to scrape and claw so that you can be worthy of getting into the kingdom. No, God is the one who justifies, Romans 8.33. So you're forcing your way into his kingdom is not a merit-based salvation. Rather, what Jesus is talking about is your determination to lay hold of the free gift that God offers to you in Jesus. It's your determination, as it were, not to leave the presence under the tree and unopened. And that was the Pharisees' problem. They were so busy in verse 15 trying to impress everyone, trying to appear dignified, that they would have never lowered themselves to sit at Jesus' feet and beg for forgiveness. They would have never lowered themselves to battle sin in the strength of the Holy Spirit or to force their way into God's presence with the tears of repentance. They would never have lowered themselves to actually do whatever it took and become undignified in order to get into the kingdom. They're like those people, you know, who sit there at Christmas and they're very careful and demure about the way they open their gifts because they don't want to appear that they're too excited about getting the gifts, right? That's the way the Pharisees were. And they never actually opened the gifts, most of them. They never actually got what Jesus had to offer because they were too dignified for it. But Jesus says the people who really get it, the people who understand God's grace, are people who will go to any length to make sure that they have obtained it, to make sure that they have laid aside everything that would keep them from faith in Jesus. And that's what the latter 
portion of verse 16 means. But here's the question for us. What does it mean by application for you? Not what does it mean to you. It doesn't really matter what it means to you. It matters just what it means. But what does it mean for you? What does this mean for you? The point Jesus is making, again, is that no one is saved by accident. And no one is saved by apathy. Salvation, yes, is a gift given to us by God, but it's a gift that must be laid hold of by repentance and faith. It's a wonderful package that must be torn open with joy and anticipation and zeal. And it's all the more vital for you and I to be sure that we have done that because we are not simply living in the era when the good news is painted for us in promises and shadows sometime in the distant future. No, we've been given far more information than Abraham ever had, haven't we? And how will we escape, Hebrews says, if we neglect so great a salvation? You have had the good news preached clearly to you, many of you, hundreds of times in your life. But you must be intentional about receiving it, about opening the gift. And if you've never done that, I'll say this to you children, especially tonight, if you've never done that, if you've never received what Jesus has given you and turned to him in repentance and faith and opened up this gift, you need to do it. And you could do it even right this very minute. Time is running short, and we all need to open the gift. Now, time's also running short on this service, so let me hurry on quickly and briefly to verse 17. Verse 17 reads as follows, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Or to put it the way we might say it in English, God cares about even the tiny little diagonal line that differentiates a capital R from a capital P. That's what Jesus is saying. Every stroke of the law. Now, why does he say this here? Well, evidently, as a safeguard against people who might be tempted to read verse 16 and to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Jesus says what he says here as a protection against those who would read verse 16 and say to themselves, well, okay, the Old Testament's been fulfilled. Jesus has come. The New Testament is so much clearer. So why why waste our time reading about those hints and shadows in Genesis through Malachi? We can just probably set those 39 books aside and just focus on the New Testament. Now, you may not be tempted to be that radical to completely discount the Old Testament. I doubt you are. There are those who do so, probably none in this room. However, you and I may be tempted at least to bend a little bit in that direction. That is to say, I wonder how many of you find that your Bible reading almost always gravitates toward the New Testament. Is that true of anyone? Or at least when you read the Old Testament, you go to books like Psalms and Proverbs and Genesis and Exodus, but not Ezra and Nehemiah and Zephaniah and Judges and so on. And if that's the case, it could be that you've mistakenly imbibed the notion that the New Testament is really more important than the Old and that the Old, while not being totally dispensable, can really be set to one side as not nearly so helpful as the New but can I just remind you, first of all, of what Jesus says? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. And the letters of the law that he's talking about, the only law that was in letters at that time was the Old Testament. And let me remind you of 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul tells us that all Scripture 
is inspired by God, and that all Scripture is therefore, he says, useful. And can I remind you that when Jesus, again, speaks of not even a stroke falling out of the law, he means what he says. There's not a sentence in the Old Testament or in the New that is not vital for our souls. It's all vital. You know, that's perhaps a mistake that we've made in, in our um, Bible-believing circles through the years. We've argued rightly that every word of the Bible is true. Right? It's right to argue that. But what we also need to go on and argue is every word of the Bible is vital for our souls. And therefore, we mustn't ignore even the smallest stroke of it. Now, we can't linger on this point, but let me just make a couple of observations to help you along the way. It's true. We may apply the Old Testament's teachings on animal sacrifices differently than the Old Testament people applied them. Because Jesus has come to fulfill and to finalize them all when he sacrificed himself. But, though we may apply those passages differently than they do, they did, that doesn't mean we don't need to read those passages just the same. They shed valuable light on all that Jesus was accomplishing when he went to the cross and laid down his life. And in fact, I've had no greater joy in preaching than on those occasions when I had the opportunity from the Old Testament to connect the dots, for instance, from the Passover lamb to Jesus, or from the ram in the thicket to Jesus, or from the tabernacle to Jesus. Those have been some of my favorite sermons. Similarly, in the light of God's declaring all foods clean for New Testament people, Acts 16, we will certainly apply the Old Testament's kosher laws differently than the ancient Jews would have rightly done. The laws about clean and unclean foods are no longer binding upon us. However, reading them, understanding them, still teaches us valuable lessons about obeying God, even in the tiny particulars. Did you ever think of all the little things that they had to do with food, and that God cared, and that he said, you need to do this? And, and when we read that, we go, boy, that's difficult. I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. But the reality is you don't have to do it with your steak, but you do have to do it in every other area of your life. God tells you what to do, and you need to obey God in all the particulars. You can learn that. And you dare not skip over, therefore, books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And then, of course, there's no indication given in the New Testament that any of the straightforward moral commands of the Old Testament, things like the Ten Commandments, are any less appropriate or applicable in modern times than they were when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And so the point Jesus is making is we have to read and appropriate all of the scriptures. Yes, we have to understand how they apply to our situation in light of the gospel and in light of Christ's coming, but no part of God's law from Genesis to Revelation is unnecessary or unhelpful. All of it is inspired, and all of it deserves your careful attention. And therefore, I urge you, just practically, if you haven't done this already, to adjust your Bible reading habits accordingly. And perhaps the new year will be a good opportunity for you to say, let me dig in to the Old Testament. And if you need help doing that, I'd be glad to talk with you and help you and give you some pointers on how to do it. But now, finally, we need to move to verse 18. It's the most difficult verse in the passage, really. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So says Jesus. Now, this is another puzzling verse, not because it's unclear, 
but because we might read it and wonder why in the world Jesus inserted it here. It's possible that he's just trying to hammer home what he said in verse 17 and to reiterate that God's serious about his law. Or it's possible that the Pharisees, for all their outward religious appearances, really had particular sin problems along these lines. And remember, that's who he was originally speaking to. We don't know for sure why Jesus dropped this in here, but whatever Jesus' reason for saying it, what he says is actually clear. Divorce and remarriage, he says, in God's sight constitutes adultery. There's no doubting that that's what Jesus means in verse 18. But the teaching, of course, is as challenging and perhaps to many people as chafing as it is clear. It's not an easy thing, Jesus says. In fact, Matthew tells us that in response to this saying, Jesus' disciples responded to him by saying that if this is the way it is, it's just better not to get married in the first place. If God's commandments about divorce and remarriage are so strong, they said in Matthew 19, we should just not get married at all. Jesus didn't change his mind in the light of that outcry or opinion. God expects us, Jesus is saying, when we say till death do us part, to mean it. Now here's another example, incidentally, of how the world's thinking is exactly opposite of what God esteems. The men and women of this world often see divorce as an expedient that will prevent them from committing adultery. Let me show you how it goes. A woman says, I've fallen out of love with my husband, and I've actually fallen in love with another man. But I'm not going to commit adultery. No, 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 I'm not going to step out on my husband. I'm going to go ahead and fill out all the paperwork. I'm going to divorce him so that then I can legitimize my relationship with bachelor number one. But I'm not just going to cheat on him. No, no, I wouldn't do that. No, I'll fill out everything, and I'll make it all above board. Or to put it more simply, I'm going to divorce and remarry so that I won't be committing adultery. That's the way that we might think. It makes logical sense according to the laws of the land. But here Jesus comes along and says, no, actually divorce and remarriage is adultery. What's the point in all of this? Why does Jesus say this? Is he trying to make divorced and remarried people feel horrible? No. Why does he say this? He's just pointing out that God views our marriage vows as binding, even if the laws of the land allow for loopholes, that God is that serious about marriage. And the reason for that, remember, is that marriage is a picture of the love that passes between Christ and his church. And Jesus knows when he says this that he'll never divorce his people. And because he won't, God wants little gospel portraits, namely our marriages, to reflect that fact. God wants husbands and wives and children and neighbors and nieces and nephews and co-workers and parents and all the people who observe us. He wants people to see in marriage, in marriages both of unsaved people and of saved people, because marriage is given to everyone. God wants people to see in marriage beautiful portraits of faithful, committed love so that when they encounter the good news of Jesus, they have a metaphor whereby to understand the commitment that Jesus promises to his bride. So it's not that God is a spoil sport. It's not that divorce is the unforgivable sin or that remarriage is the unforgivable sin. And it's not that this inability to remarry is a sort of lifetime purgatory that God puts someone in in order to make them miserable or to teach them a lesson. None of that is true. The reason for the strictness of these regulations is because God wants to safeguard the gospel. 
And since marriage is one of the primary gospel portraits that God has weaved into the fabric of every culture under the sun, he wants to safeguard marriage for the sake of safeguarding the gospel. So before I draw some final applications from verse 18, let me say one other thing. There is a possible exception to what Jesus says here, and you can find it in Matthew 5.32 and in Matthew 19.9. And many people who are smarter than me believe that those two verses grant permission to divorce and remarry in the case that your spouse has been sexually unfaithful to you. And it's possible that that's what Jesus means. There are also uh, good reasons, I think, for believing that there's more to it than that and that the divorce exception that Jesus is referring to there has to do with Jewish betrothal, Jewish engagement, which required a divorce in order to break even before you consummated the marriage. We don't have time to parse all those potential exceptions and non-exceptions out tonight, but suffice it to say that the overall resounding teaching of the Bible is this, that our marriage vows are, in God's sight, serious beyond measure. And along those lines, let me close with three points of application for us. First, we should say, as we've been saying, that marriage, both Christian marriage and unchristian marriage, is holy and sacred. God expects us to keep our vows. So if you're married or if you hope someday to be married, you need to commit to fight tooth and nail to keep your vows and to cultivate health in your marriage relationship. And maybe that's a word in season for someone tonight. More could be said along those lines, but let me just summarize by saying that we have to work at our marriages. That's one application. And that includes, incidentally, those divorced and remarried couples that you may know. It does not follow from verse 18 that if someone got into their present marriage via a previous divorce, that they should now try to correct that wrong by means of another divorce, right? God takes your present till death do his part just as seriously as he took your previous one. So what a person needs to do is to confess the past and then in that new marriage to do their best to honor Luke 16, 18 in the present situation. All marriages, even ones that began in the wrong way, are sacred in God's sight, and all marriages therefore should be fought for. Secondly, we should also say from verse 18 that God is dead serious about his commandments. Just in general, God is serious about his commandments, and that's true not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. Verse 18 is a reminder that we should never get the idea that because we are now under grace, that God has somehow softened his stance on certain things. He's not softened his stance. I can think of no more difficult commandment in all the Bible than the one in verse 18. And yet here it is from the lips of gentle, kind, merciful Jesus right in the middle of the New Testament. And that's a reminder that God is just as serious about our obedience today as he was when he thundered forth with the Ten Commandments with fire and smoke back at Mount Sinai. God is serious about his commands. And finally... Luke 16, 18, and verses like it should make us thankful for grace. Thankful for grace. We should never buy into that cheap grace, or really imitation grace, we should call it. We should never buy into the imitation grace that's so prevalent in the pop theology of our day. 
In other words, so many people in our day, when you talk about grace, want to say to themselves or to others that since Jesus died, we should all just relax. Because God's not nearly so picky anymore as he used to be. That's a lie. That's a lie. Real, authentic, biblical grace says nothing of the kind. Real, authentic, biblical grace says that God cares about every jot and tittle, the least stroke of his law, verse 17. And he cares about it so much that he required his son to keep it perfectly on our behalf and to die under his wrath because we have not kept it perfectly. That's what grace says. Biblical grace says that God still demands our utmost obedience and cares if we give it. But... God also, in his great mercy, sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins so that the seriousness of his law might be upheld and the full extent of his mercy might be realized. Biblical grace doesn't lower our standards. Biblical grace says the standards are as high as they ever were, but thanks be to God for his grace. And that's very very good news because verse 18 will hit some people like a ton of bricks and if it doesn't hit you like a ton of bricks remember that there are lots of other verses that we could pull out of the hat tonight that would hit you like a ton of bricks and each one of us knows in our heart of hearts that we are spiritual adulterers we turn away from our husband so often And the solution to our adultery is not to try to find loopholes for it. And it's not to try to convince ourselves that God has softened his stance about it. The solution for adulterers of every stripe is simply to come clean. To admit their failure and to place their faith in the one who not only argued for every jot and tittle, verse 17, but who also kept every jot and tittle on our behalf.